Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Welcome back to Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger, and um, this is, well, Space Talk, as I already mentioned. Of course, this podcast is all focused on talking about everything space from different things in the field of astronomy to rocket launches and space exploration to pondering different theories about our universe. Uh, so this has been a really exciting week as far as um, different things that we've covered here on Space Talk. Um, like yesterday, we were talking all about how constellations get their names, um, which I think if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. Um, I think it really ended up taking a really interesting turn when a few of my callers got to call in and we started chatting about black holes. Which reminds me, I got to do a black hole episode in the future because that's definitely a fun topic to talk about. But today, what we're going to be exploring are exoplanets. And the reason I chose exoplanets is because quite a lot of um, these episodes, I tend to get into my personal passion and mission to try to find life beyond Earth, which I'm not, I'm not alone in this. I know there's a lot of people out there who have asked this question for centuries, thousands of years, actually. I'm sure there's so much, so many records of people wondering if humans are, you know, alone in the universe as far as uh, intelligent life forms go that are able to make some type of communication and send satellites to nearby bodies, celestial bodies, um, and just ponder the universe. So with that being said, I think that the answer may lie on exoplanets. And the reason for that is because there is a lot of them and they're kind of similar to Earth. And if they are, then well, who's to say that there isn't possibly life that exists on those planets? So I'm going to have us first look at the two different definitions that I found online. One was good old Wikipedia, and the other one is NASA. Um, and then we're going to explore the different kinds of exoplanets. And then we're going to talk about how astronomers detect these exoplanets. Um, and then maybe explore a few other fun topics. And then, of course, I'm going to open up the call to all of my listeners. So if anyone wants to call in and ask any question, uh, doesn't I usually like to like to to post the question for you guys. So I'll say like, okay, like yesterday was what's your favorite constellation and why. Um, but you know, if you want to just talk about anything, uh, it's totally open book. Today's Saturday, so let's just have fun with it. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into the proper definition of an exoplanet. So this is the Wikipedia definition. Um, you know, let me let me start with the NASA definition. Actually, let me start with. I feel like it's a, it's a little more proper than Wikipedia, um, although Wikipedia does uh, come in strong sometimes with their information. NASA's definition of exoplanets are: exoplanets are planets orbiting around a star outside our solar system. An international research team led by the University of Bern has discovered a new exoplanet smaller than Neptune, orbiting around a red dwarf star, the University. So this is uh, at Caltech, NASA, JPL. So JPL is Jet Propulsion Laboratory. If you haven't been there in California, I highly recommend going. Such a cool spot to visit. Um, also, uh, they have a plaque that says Center of the Universe, and that is because all the information that is received from all satellites 
um, and the Deep Space Network arrives there first. So all that information gets sent first to Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and then they send it out to all the other working facilities that are working part of the Deep Space Network. So regardless, cool spot. So that's a pretty straightforward definition. Exoplanets are planets orbiting around a star outside our solar system. The Wikipedia definition says basically the same thing, except they added another word here that might not be familiar to us, which is an exoplanet or extrasolar planet, extrasolar, solar, the sun, extra sun, basically, is a planet outside the solar system. Then it gives a little bit of a cool back history. The first possible evidence of an exoplanet was actually noted in 1917, a long time ago, but it wasn't recognized as an exoplanet. The first confirmation uh, of a detected exoplanet was in 1992. And then this was followed by the confirmation of a different planet that was originally detected in 1988. So there's been quite a lot going on just for a few decades now uh, with looking for planets beyond our own solar system. And let's kind of jump into our own solar system first. So there's eight primary planets that you may or may not have grown up with. And the reason I say may not have grown up with it is because if you are uh, like somewhere around my age range, you grew up uh, in school learning about Pluto. And that Pluto was considered the ninth planet of our solar system. And it turns out that although the International Astronomical Union, ding, 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 which, by the way, we spoke about yesterday. Um, so if you want to learn a little bit about the IAU, check it out yesterday's episode. Um, when they ended up denoting Pluto and calling it just a dwarf planet and then saying it's not or demoting it and saying that it's not one of the main planets of the solar system, it uh, doesn't mean that it's still not orbiting the sun because it is. There's actually hundreds of other dwarf planets like Pluto that are also orbiting the sun in our further out reaches of the solar system. So beyond the orbit of Neptune. And so it's more of this sort of tie between do we want to teach kids that there's eight main planets or do we want to let them know that there's actually hundreds of other planets that are part of our solar system? Um, and, and I think that can be taken in two different ways. Some kids might say like, well, that's too much to, you know, do I have to memorize that? That might be a little bit tough. And some kids might be like, whoa, wait, there's so many more planets. I wonder if there's life on them. Um, and because they're so far out, most likely if there is any type of life, it would some form of an extremophile. So a tiny microorganism that can live under extreme conditions, hence the name. I believe a psychophile is the one that can survive really cold conditions or a thermophile can, uh, with, with, we can deal with really hot conditions. So, um, yeah, anyway, those are the two definitions um, of the extrasolar planets or exoplanets. And the reason, uh, as I was mentioning before, why, why I find so much interest in them is because for so long of humanity, people thought that the sun was our only star. They, they, they thought the sun was different than the stars that they saw in the night sky because also of what we mentioned yesterday, something known as the celestial sphere, which is where people thought that there were these finite points in the sky that made up these patterns in which we see it must be the gods that made it. Uh, and it turns out that all of those stars are not much different than our very own sun. And a lot of them probably have planets orbiting it, which is so exciting. And so I think that 
teaching kids about uh, exoplanets can just really open up their minds to the possibility that you know it's not just our solar system where we should be exploring. In fact, we should be exploring the entire Milky Way galaxy and beyond. Um, so uh, that being said, exoplanet is just a planet that's orbiting another star that isn't our sun. So just keep that in mind. Um, and if you ever want to remember that, you can always think extra solar. And extra solars would be, as I mentioned, like an extra sun, in a sense. Okay, now let's get into the exoplanet types. Um, gosh, I have so many, so many exciting things I want to talk to you guys about. I'm just trying to stay organized. But the exoplanet types, uh, I'm going to first list out the ones that I could remember off the top of my head. And then I'm going to list out the official ones that I had to double check and research real quick. So I remembered um, learning about hot Jupiters, mini Neptunes, and super Earths. And you might think like, well, why are we naming these exoplanets after, you know, our own planets? And it's, well, pretty simple. It's just like what we named constellations after, things that are familiar to us, like animals and, and um, you know, objects. That's what we named the constellations after. And so, of course, we're going to name planets after kind of what they look like compared to our own. Um, and so those are the ones that I remember learning about uh, recently because of discoveries. There have been very recent discoveries of mini Neptunes, hot Jupiters, super Earths. But the proper four types are Neptunian, so s similar to the mini Neptunes, super Earth, so I already got that one down, um, gas giant, so gas giants, just like Jupiter, Saturn, and then terrestrial. And terrestrial is ding, ding, ding. That's like the key planet to think about, the key exoplanet. Um, if we want to look at least for life similar to Earth, uh, life similar to our biological beings, our fragile human um, existence, because all these other planets might not have the right conditions for us to be able to survive and for plants to be able to live or photosynthesis to happen. And if none of that can happen, then from our understanding, can there be life? Now, I'm not going to get into in this episode about the potential of other types of life forms and get all Star Trekky on you all. Um, but thinking about sort of like the possibility of life forms and consciousness being in other types of, uh, you know, uh, other, other, just other types of life, basically, whether it's a light form or whether it's, um, eh, there was a Star Trek episode about nanobots. <laughs> and so that is for a separate day. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a breakdown of what each of these exoplanet types are like. So as I mentioned, terrestrial, really important. Um, it's Earth-sized, so very similar size to our Earth, um, or smaller. It's mostly made up of rock and metal. And some could possess ocean or atmospheres and perhaps other signs of habitability. So very key factor here. So if um, TESS, the Transiting Exoplanetary Survey Satellite, can't believe I still have that memorized, um, uh, which just launched a few years ago, uh, which is looking for exoplanets, if it finds terrestrial planets, that's going to be very key to researchers like hopefully me again one day, uh, we'll be looking into this and say, ha, huh, I wonder if we should be exploring these worlds. Let's check out their atmospheres. Let's check out the terrain. Um, could there be signs of life? Now we're going to go into super Earth. Super Earth, uh, which are typically terrestrial in nature, um, or they're rocky, 
but they're more massive than Earth, but they're lighter than Neptune, so less dense. They might or might not have atmospheres, so that's a key factor. Um, there have been discoveries on super-Earths. I made a YouTube video once about a super-Earth. It was the first time I learned the name. This was uh, when I was living in L.A., so this was probably about 2016, 2017, um, I, I can always just uh, reference that video another time, but if you just go to my YouTube channel, Astro Athens, um, and type in Super Earth, it should pop up. Uh, that should be interesting. Then we also have Neptune-like objects or Neptunian exoplanets. And, of course, they're similar in size to, well, Neptune, but also like Uranus. And so Neptune and Uranus are those two icy giants in our solar system that are um, really, really cold. And they, so the, this, the, these types of planets are similar in size to those. Um, they have very dominant atmospheres with hydrogen and helium. And many Neptunes um, are, though they're not found in our own solar system, they are smaller than Neptune, but larger than Earth. And so those can be kind of interesting planets to explore. But the main thing here is they would be fun to research, but probably not to try to find life. Um, again, habitability, unless we find um, some form of life form that can exist under those kinds of conditions. Um, and so for our final type of exoplanet, we have the gas giants. So the size of Saturn or Jupiter or much larger. I can't even fathom a planet that big. If you haven't looked at a scale of the planets compared to Earth, um, I highly recommend doing it. Even looking up like a YouTube video that talks about sort of like the size of a basketball, and then the size of Earth, and then the sun, and then the gas giants, it really puts it into perspective for you. Um, there's so many incredible models out there that have made this. So I recommend doing that. Gas giants, um, they also include hot Jupiters. So really, really scorching hot planets in close orbits with their stars. So again, most likely a planet that cannot harbor life. Um, my little kitty says hello. She is under the door. <laughs> I don't want to put her in another room for this episode, but she says, hi, everyone. So gas giants. Uh, so hot Jupiters, again, really close to the orbits around their stars, um, and that's something we're going to get into after this music break. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to bring my, my kitten in her comfy bed um, for this quick music break. And then we're going to get into something known as the habitable zone and red dwarf stars. All right, let's jump back into it. Okay, so we're exploring exoplanets. Uh, not only what are they, but also could they harbor life one day? 
Um, some of the most, I think, important questions to ask, whether you are in the field of astronomy or you just are a space enthusiast, I think that these are all things that we should probably explore a little bit about. So, um, as I mentioned, the four different types of exoplanets are terrestrial, Neptunian, super-Earths, and gas giants. Now, most likely the only ones that may be able to harbor life are terrestrial and possibly super-Earths. Um, if you're just joining this call, hello, welcome to the chat. Um, once I publish this video, you can rewind so that you can actually receive the definitions of an exoplanet. Um, but we're going to move forward into how close do they need to be to their star. So um, just at about where our orbit is from our sun, we so our sun is a, a, a yellow dwarf star. So it's pretty big. Um, it's pretty hot. But it's a main sequence star. So it, the, it's at a point of its life where it's, I would say, a pretty average temperature, pretty average size. Um, it's the type of star that when it dies, it'll expand into a red giant star and eventually probably just shed all of its um, outer layers and its elements into a planetary nebula. And it'll eventually engulf the Earth. The reason I mention that is because when looking for planets um, that may harbor life, we have to first look at the types of stars that exist out there. You're not going to want to look for a red giant star because, well, it's too unstable. It's too um, harsh. It's too risky to have planets orbiting around it that can potentially harbor life because its star is currently dying. If we looked at um, stars like our own, a good area of the habitable zone is right where our orbit is because, well, we're alive, I think. <laughs> we are, we are. Um, and we are at a pretty safe distance. We're at 1 AU, which is astronomical unit, about 93 million miles from the sun. Um, there's a, a 30 Seconds to Mars song that like had me memorize. That's what like really taught me to always remember one astronomical unit. And I used to listen to it in high school. It starts 93 million miles from the sun. Um, so point is, uh, within this range, 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 this region, this is where the habitable zone is. But the thing is, most of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy are not like our sun. They're actually something a little bit different. They are low mass stars known as red dwarfs that are considered M type stars, but they're a lot cooler um, I got to spend just a summer internship once doing research on M dwarf stars, um, which was really exciting. And then brown dwarf stars uh, with a couple of my mentors at the time, Dr. Kelly Cruz and Dr. Emily Rice uh, at the Hayden Planetarium in New York. And that was really exciting research because um, we once astronomers discovered that most of the Milky Way is made up of these types of stars they realize this is where we should be looking because they're cooler stars. More of the planets can be located close to them. The habitable zone is now a wider range. There can be more planets orbiting around it. I don't know if uh, you guys remember the news when it broke, I think in 2013, 14 or 15, it was one of those years, about the TRAPPIST-1 star system. First of all, I just remember the media like really building this up and saying there's some huge announcement that NASA's going to make at 1 p.m. Like, make sure you tune in. And I remember a bunch of people were actually like watching it and listening to it. I think I was at a Starbucks in New York and um, 
there were people who were like, hey, did you hear that thing? What, what did NASA discover or something? Um, and it was TRAPPIST-1. And the reason this was so exciting is because there were seven planets. Um, I think only three of them were in the habitable zone. I don't think all seven were. But um, all seven of them were at least Earth-like. They were Earth and Earth size. Um, they were around a low-mass star, like the red dwarf star. And so there was a lot of excitement around this because, okay, do these have an atmosphere? Do they have the possibility for life? Um, and I think it turned out, I mean, it hasn't really been in the news recently. So I'm guessing it sort of just, you know, there's, there's some research being done on it, but nothing groundbreaking that's been discovered since then. Um, but don't quote me on that. Go ahead and look it up yourself. I'd love to learn from you. Um, and then maybe you could maybe you could join Colin and let me know. Maybe you could call in and let me know. Um, so uh, that is some interesting stuff as far as the types of stars that exist in our universe, how to, you know, where they should be located. But now the next question is, how do astronomers look for them? How do they find them? Well, as I mentioned earlier, TESS launched the Transiting Exoplanetary Survey Satellite, and it looks for exoplanets by using the transit method. And the transit method is by looking at a star and noticing how often it dips in brightness and then brightens again. So it starts to get dimmer and brighter, dimmer and brighter, dimmer and brighter. And if it happens within a certain period, um, and like to a certain degree, it might be possible that there is a planet orbiting it. Um, this is one. Of, this is one of the methods. Um, something I always like to do to sort of explain this to people is by holding a flashlight and then just passing an object in front of it. And uh, once it then uh, you know it reaches a point where they start to say, okay, this probably is a planet. They then will try to zoom into this entire area, point all the telescopes into this region, um, whoever the researcher is, however many telescopes they can actually get um, at the time. And because I know you have to book out time to, to use massive telescopes um, and explore that region, uh, both in the infrared. You're also going to want to look at it um, in also the, the ultraviolet wavelength. You're going to want to look at it in all the different spectrum and try to notice how frequent this um, dipping, this dimness and brightness is happening. And then you'd be able to figure out, okay, maybe there's a planet in front. And if you're able to then capture uh, like possibly an image of a planet passing in front of that star, you then would be able to explore its atmosphere. And then that would be really exciting. Um, exploring its atmosphere, we can get into another time. I'd want to like research a little bit more. Um, but basically, it's by using, uh, it's, it's analyzing its spectra that comes back. And so you know what elements are present in that star, mainly hydrogen, helium, um, maybe some like deuterium, maybe some other elements. Uh, but you know that there's nothing usually heavier than iron because nuclear fusion can only usually go up to about that element. It gets too heavy for the star, the star could explode. And so when you know what elements are present in that star, and if you're receiving the spectra right as that exoplanet crosses in front of the sun and you're receiving different elements, then most likely that's from an exoplanet or some type of object that's passing in front um, and then you start to figure out, okay, is this coming from its atmosphere? Most likely it will be its atmosphere because that's what is between us and the surface of the planet. So pretty fun stuff. Um, let's see. There was one more thing I wanted to chat with you guys about, and then I'll open up the room to any callers who might want to join. 
Um, one thing is the NASA Exoplanet Archive. I'm going to go ahead and pull that up. I recommend you guys pulling it up too later and checking it out. It's literally called exoplanetarchive.ipac.caltech.edu. Cut along. Maybe just type into Google NASA Exoplanet Archive. It'll come up. Usually a lot easier than typing in like a URL. So this is really cool. Uh, it actually shows, let's see, what is this? The Lucky 7. Um, okay, well, I'm not going to look at that right now. I don't want to digress. But I want to read some stats to you guys, some cool numbers. So people always ask me, how many confirmed exoplanets are there? Like how many, what are we, like, what are we talking about? What do we know of? So, so far there are 4,884 confirmed exoplanets as of 12, uh, well, December 13th, 2021. TESS has confirmed 175 of those. And then TESS also projects uh, that there'd be about another 5,000 164. Um, so this would be a real again a really interesting thing to explore if you want to look at this. They also this is cool. This is a cumulative uh, where to go just disappeared. Cumulative exoplanet detections by discovery year, and it shows a chart going from 1989 up until modern day, and you just see a total increase in exoplanet discoveries from zero to 2,000 to 4,000, and it's still increasing. Um, and then it even shows, this is really cool, it even shows how it was discovered. Um, radial velocity, transits, microlensing, imaging, timing variations, orbital brightness, modulation, astrometry, disk kinematics. Um, so all that stuff, that, that's going to be for my own food for thought, my own research. I want to read up on all that stuff. Um, but I think you guys should as well. That could be really cool. They also have a ton of scatter plot diagrams. I remember doing these. This was super fun. Um, so anyway, point is, if you're not looking at this in front of you, uh, I will stop describing it. I recommend you guys uh, look this up. It could be a really fun, fun project. So I'm going to go ahead and open this up now to callers. Let's see, make it public. All right, I now have it open up to any callers. If anyone wants to call in, that would be great. Um, again, you could talk about anything, ask me any question. Otherwise, let's see, huh? cue sinister uh, hand finger motion, trying to come up with a question for you guys. Uh, for you to call in. So I usually will ask like, what's your favorite messier object? Or what's your favorite constellation? But in this case, I don't think we know enough exoplanets to say what our favorite exoplanet is. Um, so maybe I'll ask this. Do you think whenever we find life beyond Earth, will it be within our own solar system or beyond our own solar system? And then I will cue the music. Feel free to call in anytime during this music moment. Um, and if you don't, um, I will then just continue talking about what I think. And then we will end today's call. But I encourage you to call in if you'd like. Alrighty. Okay. So looks like um, I haven't gotten anyone who requested a call in. That's totally cool. Totally fine. It's Saturday. Just chill out. Um, 
I am going to kind of answer my own question then as far as if we'll find life within our own solar system or beyond. Um, and I would say we'll, we'll probably find it in both. But I think first we'll probably find it within our own solar system. And that's because I don't think it's going to be on any of the planets. Um, I'm curious. I feel like we will find some type of fossil of past life on Mars because right around the time that it was estimated that Mars lost its atmosphere and all life got obliterated. Let me rephrase that. It was estimated that the time that life began on Earth was around the same time that Mars totally like lost its atmosphere and like resurfaced. And so possibly there might have been life on there right around that same time. Food for thought. Um, but I would say that life would probably be found first within the moons um, around Jupiter or Saturn within our solar system. And the reason for that is because we have things like hydrothermal vents on Enceladus uh, with water ice literally shooting out from its south pole. I think Enceladus is one of my favorite moons to talk about. Um, and that's because it has, uh, so as I mentioned, hydrothermal vents. So if you check out an, an image of Enceladus, you'll see in its south pole, it has um, like plumes of water ice shooting out, Cassini the Cassini spacecraft, uh, which went to Saturn um, and then crashed into Saturn, flew through these plumes. Um, so with that being said, moon of Saturn. And what's interesting about it is these hydrothermal vents are exactly where there's life existing here on Earth. There are like tiny microorganisms and bacteria, um, and it's thought that this is where life probably began on Earth. Um, and I think that's just so exciting. Like this, this is like this, this moon is so cold and icy, and yet it has these regions in its South Pole where there's boiling water and there's sulfur oxide and there's, there's stuff that's happening that can cause life to form. And so when you have these proper elements of water and, and, and boiling water, but then ice water, and then you have like chemical compounds, sulfur oxide, and other things I don't really know about because I don't, I got to brief up on chemistry. Uh, it's just so fascinating to think about that there could possibly be life existing there. Uh, granted, it's, it might be in the form of, you know, the, again, these little bacteria, but, you know, maybe that's the first step to finding space fish. And I think that would be really cool. Um, so that's that's my view. I also think Titan is really interesting, um, which Titan is the largest moon of Saturn. So we've got two really interesting moons around Saturn. Um, Titan could be a pretty cool place where there may be life. Um, so just as we mentioned on Enceladus, where it's really cold, um, and there might be possibly uh, like extremophiles living there. So I think they were psychophiles, the ones that could handle really cold temperatures. Uh, there might be some type of thermophile on Titan. So Titan, it has a really thick, thick uh, sulfur oxide, I believe, or sul sulfuric um, atmosphere. And um, I'll like look this all up. We'll do another episode on Titan. So I actually have the details for you guys. But from what I remember, um, really harsh environment, but really high chance that there might be some type of uh, small thing that's buried deep within the surface uh, that could potentially exist um, because it has a, a surface of liquid. And although that liquid is not liquid water, um, it's still something uh, methane 
uh, and on other really harsh elements, but there might be things that can exist in that. So I think that could be really cool. Um, I do have a friend who happens to be a Titan expert, so I'm hoping he can come on here soon. It'd be really cool. I've talked about him before, Dr. Kirby Runyon. Um, we've also spoken about sand dunes on Mars. And also he is the, the Pluto advocate. So he is the one who is pro teaching kids in school that there are thousands of planets in our solar system rather than saying just the, the main eight. I was usually will specify saying the main eight rather than just eight Um and so, yeah, so the main, the main reason we haven't been able to bring him on just yet is because he has an Android phone. And I know that uh, on Colin, we do have just iPhone, but we might just set up a Zoom interview anyway, and then I'll just record that on my phone here um, and just go live. And that could be really cool. Um, so, yeah. So with that being said, um, thank you all so much for joining this call on a Saturday. Um, I hope you guys get to go out and uh, you have one final chance. I think it starts to fade Sunday night. The globular cluster that's visible this week. If you don't know which one I'm talking about, go ahead and listen to this week's um, space objects that are visible in two episodes ago. So I did it on Wednesday. And go ahead and listen to that one. But again, I hope you all have a fabulous rest of your weekend. Keep looking up at the stars. And until next time, add Astra.